Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. While the world is all gloomy and full of despair... One thing that might help you is comfy loungewear But I mean it won't help with a war or you know a raging disease But it will help you sit on your bottom with enjoyment and ease Ooh, British boxers, they sell lovely pants and pyjamas Ooh, British boxers, which might help you deal with global dramas Ooh, British boxers, they are a real nice sort so go check their range from t-shirts to boxer shorts British Box is a very ethically lovely loungewear and underwear company who just the other week went viral on Twitter for posting swears about Nigel Farage. So what more could you want? And with the code PARPOLBRO15, you get 15% off any order what you do on their site at British-Boxes.com. So don't just forget that while everything out there seems quite mad That some things might be pants and yet also not bad Ooh, British boxers British boxers don't sell boxers So please don't try to buy any of your favourite boxing legends from their website Or they will ignore your email Barry McGuigan is not for purchase And we please stop contacting them to ask Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that you can downstream from all of the internets, even the UK's best one, while playing on a tennis pitch. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week, as adult disguised as a child in a 90s undercover cop film set in a school, Emmanuel Macron was re-elected as French president, beating Marine Le Pen, the far-right leader who looks like a cross between someone who runs a calf and a person who professionally strangles dogs. Nothing says hope for the future of the world, quite like being relieved only 42% of a country's voters are Nazis. It must be odd for Emmanuel Macron, with his smile like he's just been told he's allowed an ice cream because he ate all of his greens, to know that the only reason some of the French public chose to have him as their president again is because they really hate him, but at least he's not a fascist. He has, of course, vowed to unite France, but in a way, over the last five years in his first presidential term, he did. It was just that he brought them together in absolute hatred for him, and a percentage of people just hated him enough to prefer the possibility of the sort of person who'd have melted in an Indiana Jones film. 
While it was a low turnout for a French election, it's still concerning that well over a third of that low turnout opted for Marine Le Pen as their ideal leader, and it can only be confusing to Russian President Vladimir Putin, who seems to now be morphing into an uncooked bagel, that France may now need to be denazified too, but then that's his fault for funding them for so long. Maybe if he really wanted that outcome for Ukraine, he should stop the onslaught and instead plough tons of money into an electoral candidate who'd be too stupid to actually win anything. But saying that, they'd still lose a lot less than Russia seemed to have done in the last two months. As reasons to have a leader go though, at least he's not a Nazi could be seen as a damn sight better than the current conservative excuse for the continual human rut that is Boris Johnson, a man who shares 99% of his DNA with a clogged train. Johnson is now the first sitting Prime Minister to break the law, having received so far one fine from the Met Police for attending a party during lockdown when it was illegal. Contrary to what you might think, I find that quite surprising. Uh, Not the breaking the law bit, but that he did it while sitting, as I assumed he was mostly lying on the floor, passed out after all the boozing. It has often been said that the UK Parliament is a bubble that doesn't represent minority groups, and yet what could be more progressive than a leader who can now speak for the entire criminal underworld? But he can't be removed as Prime Minister because, according to co-chairman of the Conservative Party and a man who mosquitoes use as a profile boost that at least they have more purpose on earth than he does, Oliver Dowden, Boris Johnson leaving number 10 would lead to instability. Oh, God, and who'd want that, right? I mean, right now, Britain is like Johnny Sturdy over here with its solid plummeting into recession, its firm 500-plus deaths a day from COVID, and its fully balanced food supplies where supermarkets are currently having to ration sunflower oil, presumably threatening the future of greased poles as no one can afford the energy bills to cook with it anyway. We wouldn't want to shake the reliable foundations of government, you know, when right now it contains the incredible lineup of a Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, half-man, half-YouTube advert for a Ponzi scheme, who's also broken the law by attending an illegal party, and whose wife spent money to be classed as a non-dom just so she didn't have to pay tax in the UK. Though, to be fair, if I was married to someone who was so embarrassingly fucking up the country, I'd probably pretend to live somewhere else too. Three cabinet ministers are facing allegations of sexual misconduct, as are two shadow cabinet ones and 56 MPs overall, but I suppose they must feel empowered by a system that allows them to continuously shaft the country however they please. The Mail on Sunday, the tabloid that is to newspapers what poo bags are to the luxury luggage industry, ran an article last weekend insisting that anonymous Tory ministers have accused the deputy Labour leader and star of a British version of Russian Doll where her character just deals with the same shit every single day of her parliamentary life, Angela Rayner, of plotting to distract the Prime Minister by crossing and uncrossing her legs while sitting on the opposite benches to him. Which might have meant to be a sexist slur at her, but it does just make it sound like RPM not only breaks the rules he makes, but also can't focus at all if he sees women. If they're really insistent that he can't go from his job, can we at least send him to one of those dog training schools in order to sort him out? The piece suggested that Rayner uses these tactics of, you know, being female and sitting down, because she can't compete with Johnson's Oxford Union debating training. If that's training that he's got, I'd ask for my money back, as you could get given tips on shouting and having no clue what you're talking about from any overtired four-year-old for completely free. Johnson tweeted that as much as he disagreed with Rayner on every political issue, he deplored the misogyny directed at her, because if I was him, I'd be self-loathing too. The Prime Minister also messaged her directly, which we think would probably in support, but for all we know, could well have just been an aubergine emoji. Johnson has threatened to unleash the terrors of the earth on whichever Tory MP made those claims about Rayner, so at least we know why he's now insisting on investing in so much fracking. 
Culture Secretary and the only person in Britain exempt from having an airbag in her car as it would be unnecessary, Nadine Dorries, sent the exact same tweet about the article as Johnson did because nothing says supportive quite like a copy and paste job. Apparently, they sent the same message because they'd reached the same view and used the same words. If this means that the Conservatives are operating as one hive mind with no individual thought behind any of their eyes, then actually yes, I do think this sounds like a very valid and plausible reason. Dorries had, just the past week, been interviewed on a TikTok video by another Tory MP where she explained that her job as Culture Secretary was helping people to downstream content and play on tennis pitches, so there is every chance her computer had malfunctioned and the only way to get her back online was to plug her directly into the Prime Minister's drive and run it from there. Dorries said people that criticised her were mocking her dyslexia, which you think she'd approve of as that's basically Conservative policy. Also, pretty certain it's not a condition of dyslexia that it causes you to act like a callous fucking idiot all of the time. Still, no chance of her words being laughed at again when they're all Boris Johnson's, is there? Incidentally though, if you do downstream videos, it will break them and increases their chances of being eaten by a bear. Yes, British politics is so stable right now that Nadim Zawahi would probably get the public to pay to heat them. And so we can't get rid of the man that's causing all the distractions or it just distracts us from the real issues that the Prime Minister's behaviour keeps distracting us from. Issues like the war in Ukraine, which our government is leading the fight on by, you know, not actually being involved at all in the fight. Is this what virtual warfare means now? We don't remotely take part but just tell everyone you absolutely are? Then, very importantly, there's the free trade deal with India that the Prime Minister is conveniently negotiating right now so that he could be out of the country for a bit and get dressed up in a turban. Or at least that's what the caption said on the news site, but I have a feeling the people of India saw the way he behaved and assumed he must have a severe head injury that really needed treating. When questioned about the Indian Prime Minister and ethno-nationalist Ewok Narendra Modi's close relationship with Russia, Johnson insisted that Modi had asked Putin what on earth he's doing several times and that what Indians want is peace, which must be why the Prime Minister's mainly been discussing changing licensing rules so that the UK can sell them loads more weapons. Still, being friendly with Russia, policies that plunge many of its citizens into poverty, poor management of Covid outbreaks and a constant oppression of Muslims, it's no wonder Johnson thinks Britain would get along with India, we're basically already twinned. There's all that important stuff, see, and the government also has to roll out their new international law-breaking plan to send all asylum seekers to be processed in Rwanda, which I'm certain only came about because the Home Secretary Priti Patel, the sort of person that would organise a kids' party where attendees have to run a real medieval gauntlet, saw a five-star review for Hotel Rwanda on the internet and assumed it would be a nice place for people to stay. According to Patel, the most humane thing you can do for people seeking asylum in this country in order to escape persecution or death is to send them to another unsafe country where they may come under persecution or die. If Patel was in the Red Cross, she'd probably provide aid by helicoptering into a war zone, picking up those in danger and then dropping them off in a different war zone before saying, hey, a change is as good as a rest you know and you probably need a rest and then flying off. The plan has been condemned by human rights experts, other Conservative MPs and even the Archbishop of Canterbury and if God exists, why your face so small? Justin Welby, who said the plan was ungodly. Now, I agree with his sentiment, but really all actions are ungodly unless you're suddenly able to shoot lightning from your hands or cause a plague of locusts to appear. Despite this, many Conservative MPs took to social media to complain about the church interfering with their plans and constipated potato Ben Bradley said, we separated the church from the state a long time ago, which, if that's true, why do I always say Jesus fucking Christ every time I read the news about anything the government have done? The Church of England is the state church, the Queen is the head of state and the head of the Church of England, and 26 bishops sit in the House of Lords as the Lord's Spiritual, which is nowhere as exciting as the name sounds, and they really should be all the top ghosts. 
Patel says critics of her plans have no solutions, which they do. It's just that they mostly involve safe routes, caring about people and her being consumed by a hellmouth, so she's absolutely unable to conceive of them. It's not only the moral aspect of this horrific plan, though. Based on Australia's disastrous attempt to do this, it could cost over £1 million per asylum seeker, which pleb hater and former chief whip Andrew Mitchell said would be cheaper to house all of the refugees in the Ritz and send all of their kids to Eton. Brilliant! I'm very up for that plan, and it could mean that one day we have a Prime Minister who actually understands the plight of people trying to get out of a war zone alive, unlike our current one, who puts all his energy into just getting out of his trousers wherever possible. The Home Secretary blamed those against the plan for being derogatory towards Rwanda, though it was only ten months ago that the UK itself condemned it for human rights abuses. Oh no, wait, no. That's probably exactly why Pretty Patel likes it, isn't it? You can't put a price on saving lives, she told Parliament, which must be why she's willing to spend absolutely millions ending them. The Prime Minister can't go, yeah, right, with all of that stuff to do. And anyway, can't a guy break a law in his life without people getting up in his grill? As some people have pointed out, Johnson's probably not the only sitting MP to have broken the law, just the first one to have got caught, which means he's not only a crim, but a fucking idiot as well. And can't we have sympathy for someone that's that stupid? Johnson said sorry and pretended he meant it, and he paid the 50 quid fine, which I'm sure we'll find out was actually covered by a Tory donor, who in exchange has now been allowed to buy all of Britain's air. And all the while, Johnson insists he didn't mislead Parliament when he said he hadn't broken the law, which means he was just confused by the law, and haven't we all been confused by the laws we've made and enforced and other people got life-ruining fines for breaking? And isn't it just inspirational to other idiots out there that you could be stupid enough to not know if you're at a party or not and still be in charge of nuclear weapons? The Prime Minister escaped a fine for a drinks party in the Garden of Number 10 in May 2020, but more fines could still come as the Met are investigating 10 more events. And it seems now, finally, Johnson is looking like a liability to the Conservative Party, with rumours the local elections on May the 5th could see them losing more seats than the world's worst musical chairs player. Many Conservatives running for council seats are campaigning as local Conservatives, though that could just be to assure voters that they're not also registered as non-doms. Steve Baker, who's a member of all of the worst groups and has a forehead that looks like it's trying to run away from the rest of his body, has demanded that Boris Johnson quit and says he's lost confidence in him. Which is impressive, as Steve Baker has had confidence in some of the worst ideas I've ever heard, so he must think Johnson is even worse than the Covid Recovery Group or the European Research Group. MPs voted in the Commons for the Privileges Committee to investigate whether Johnson had misled Parliament, and a source has leaked that the Sue Gray report is looking so bad for the Prime Minister he will be forced to resign. But has he now done something that should have forced him to resign every week since he became Prime Minister? I mean, there was lying to the Queen, unlawfully proroguing Parliament, letting the Covid death toll hit 180,000, not wearing a mask when he should have, getting dosed for someone he was sleeping with, the flat refurbishments, the Russia connections, the mess with the Irish sea border, and on and on and on and on. And he's still there. So forgive me for being pleased that MPs voted for him to be investigated again, while also being certain it'll be announced that the Privileges Committee is to be replaced by Boris Johnson's favourite aunt and someone called Joris Bonson, who looks very familiar but we can't quite pinpoint why. What could the Sue Gray report actually contain that would make him go? Will it reveal he has a tattoo saying fuck David Attenborough or that he once put a cat in a bin? It's got to be something pretty serious and so it's more likely it's going to be down to the local elections and then whether his own MPs have finally had enough. But even now there are still some insisting he's the man to lead the country. And if that's true and we need someone like Johnson who doesn't know where he is half the time and falls into a stupor if he looks at a woman's legs then I worry it's repeats of 70s sitcoms that are actually to blame for the decline of the country. Oh well, at least he's not a fascist. Ish. Ugh. 
In other news, Minister for Brexit Opportunities and the Image Your Kids Draw when they describe their nightmares, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has said all civil servants must stop working from home and left a note on many of their desks saying, sorry you were out when I visited, which is a stupid waste of time as they're working from home so they won't see it and because there's only room for 60% of staff in the government offices, most of them actually hot desk. Not something Rees-Mogg would understand, as he can only ever imagine children working at the same thresher machines so they know exactly where to put their tiny arms so they don't lose them. Flexible working, the ability to do more work from home, was actually part of the Conservatives' 2019 manifesto, but I suppose that's why we should have known there was absolutely no way they'd do anything to make it work. I am certain that the working from home concept is completely alien to people like Rees-Mogg, because whenever he's at home, he does absolutely fuck all, because his nanny or butlers are doing it all for him. Then again, he doesn't do anything at work either except leave stupid notes, most of which I'm sure for for people who had they seen him coming, they would have gone home just to avoid him. In Are There Any Conservatives Who Aren't Criminals news, the MP for Wakefield and another Conservative who's taken all his style tips from Howard Horror Films, Imran Ahmed Khan, was found guilty of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy and could rightfully face time in jail. He's been expelled from the Conservative Party, which was surprisingly quicker than as they usually support decisions that ruin children's lives, but Khan still hasn't resigned his seat, meaning a by-election hasn't yet been scheduled. But it's not going to be easy for the Conservatives to keep that seat if their only proof of being tough on crime is giving so many crooks jobs it's going to keep them too busy to do other misdemeanours. Meanwhile, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire and the creation of several body flipbook accidents, Andrew Bridgden, was found guilty of lying under oath by the High Court over the exact circumstances of his departure from his family business and that he'd also sent all the company's directors abusive messages. He then said he'd actually won the case that he'd just lost and he's now under parliamentary investigation. Still, can't be easy for Bridgden when he was just getting on with lying like he always does and then someone went and brought an oath to it. Maybe the Conservatives need to embrace this new criminal identity and just start campaigning for the country to become a scoundrel's outpost, start apprenticeships for pirates and maybe save loads of money by scrapping the entire prison system and instead just sentencing people to work for the party. I mean, they'll have the skills and that way Rees-Mogg will be really happy that they're chained to their desks. How has this show gone from political comedy to bloody true crime? Still, on the plus side, it might actually be popular now. Thanks, Boris. Yeah, hello, Parpol Brods. It's back. You're back. I hope you're back. Boris Johnson is still fucking there. Um, I so nearly recorded a mini episode several times over the last couple of weeks. Oh, Rishi Sunak may resign. I'll record an episode. Oh, no, 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 he hasn't. Oh, Johnson's been fined. It'll all kick off. Oh, no, nothing's actually happened. In a weird way, I suppose it is a sort of stability, isn't it? You know, there's a certainty that no matter what stories come out about just how shitty awful they are, fuck all happens. I didn't mention Labour much this week, but it still feels like their game plan is like Macron's of, well, at least we're not them, which is just the bleakest reason to vote for someone. We've got no ideas, but we're less shit, but then maybe that is the most representative of British people. It'll all likely be shit, so we'll just have the least shit, please. Anyway, uh, I hope you had a good Easter weekend or Passover or, or being getting on with your Ramadan fasting okay. I know there's only a few days left. You can do it. What I did over that period of time was I was touring the kids' politics show that myself and Tatum at Simple Politics have restarted after our enforced break in March 2020. And the show now has a much more what you can do to change stuff, even though your kids vibe about it, uh, which is great. It's really nice to have something sort of positive and optimistic. But during the show, we asked the kids to say what problems they want to fix. Um, and while... 
one was about homework and there was some really weird talk about firing llamas out of cannons. Generally, what the kids want to fix is climate change, things being too expensive, the war in Ukraine and that we have a prime minister who broke the law. And these kids are age six or seven plus, uh, you know, so they're all aware of everything. They just, they, they absorb all of this news and it just makes me wonder like what the lasting effect of that is going to be. I mean, are they going to be kind of despondent and apathetic that, that we couldn't even get rid of a prime minister that broke the law? Or are they all going to get really savvy and start lying all the time and being really shit at all their work in the hope that one day they'll end up as prime minister? Uh, I just don't know. I guess we'll have to sort of wait and see. Um, I also went to Guernsey last week for the first time ever and it is it is a lovely, lovely place. All right, it was like, I know, it's so close to like here, but also feels very much like sort of Europe, like the Med, but with more fish and chip shops. It was great. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, their political system in Guernsey is highly confusing, but I know that their head of state is a bailiff, and that's funny because that's what I'd call someone who takes all your belongings away, which I suppose is what Boris Johnson does to Britain, but we dishonestly call him a PM. Maybe we should call him a bailiff. Um, it was very nice, though. It was very, very nice being on an island for a day um, where, while all the world news was war and Johnson lying and all the other horrors, Guernsey's main news was that some CBD gummies had too much CBD in them and locals had to hand in 83 gummies to the police. Um, That is wonderful stuff, isn't it? I love that that was their main news. I love how concerned they were that some people may get far too chilled out. Uh, so that's it, really. Um, that's what I did. This show's back now. Um, it's back for a bit. Uh, so uh, thanks to Connell and Loretta and Hector for donating to the Kofi in the past few weeks. I know a few of you have left the Patreon, um, and I completely understand that in these times of everything costing silly amounts. This is a free podcast. If you can't afford to donate to it, please, please don't. It's going to continue to be free. Um, but also the patreon.com forward slash bro and kofi.com forward slash bro really do help me afford to be able to spend time making this. Um, and look, I'm not going to lie. I'm slightly bitter. I keep seeing comedy podcasts uh, that have started recently. And they're all doing super well. And they have like 10,000 Patreons. And they're basically, it's their living now. And they're all recording shows in the Bahamas. Again, they're not doing that bit. But they do they do actually do loads of bonus stuff that you can only get on the Patreons. So it's probably that, isn't it? Because I, I can't be asked to do any of that. I don't have any time. Um, this show currently has 51 patrons, and I adore you all, and I'm very grateful to all of you. But if any of the rest of you can even spare £1 a month and join up, it doesn't half help. In fact, it doesn't half help. It full helps. It 110% helps. Oh, no. I've lost the maths fans. Come back. Um, I used to have a gag about how we're all the 99%, apart from the life coach wankers, who are the 110%. Yeah, I don't do that one anymore. Uh, but yeah, if you can join the Patreon, even just sort of beef it up. Even so I can go around telling everyone on the block that, yeah, I've got 52 patrons. Check me out. I'm like a big man. Um, that would be absolutely awesome. Right, uh, super serious but very necessary chats this week um, about a charity and situation that needs cash much more than me. So, you know, donate there first because I'm not a villain, right? Um, but then donate to me after. Thanks. <laughs> You might remember last year when the US and UK curiously decided the best way to honour the 20th anniversary of not having the Taliban in charge of Afghanistan was to leave all the doors unlocked and put a big sign in the window saying, nobody's home, let yourself in, so that, to use their full name, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan could have another go. Since last autumn, the country has been under a dictatorship of extreme rule and the Taliban have managed to do what was previously thought to be impossible and make the US invasion and subsequent decades of instability look almost like the golden years. This new, modern, updated Taliban swore they were different, though, and far more westernised. But it turned out that only really referred to how the West is far more oppressive now, so they could really fit in with other global leaderships. 
I mean, for example, not to point out similarities to anywhere in particular, but the Taliban made several promises about how they would be protecting all ethnic groups and vowed to respect women, and then they haven't actually done either of those things and everything's quite terrible. The country is in deep recession and people are in deep oppression. And luckily, last year though, the UK government stepped up and said they would assist thousands of Afghan refugees who aided the British Army, and the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, insisted people should not flee to the UK as safe routes would be set up. Yet, as you can probably guess, here we are a year after the UK's Afghan Relocation Assistance Programme was set up and eight months after things really kicked off and got scary and thousands and thousands of Afghans who are eligible to come here are still trapped under Taliban rule. Though, you know, the British government did help a man who sounded like an old bicycle evacuate heaps of sad dogs. And by that I mean actually rescue animals, it's not a euphemism for taking a shit, even though it does sound like it, doesn't it? So, refugees who've helped the British military rank in importance to the British government somewhere beneath pets. And what's worse now is that because there aren't any safe routes to get here, anyone that does try is likely to be detained or relocated to Rwanda, like they might want to complete a living under oppressive regime's tick list. So, what happens to those in danger in Afghanistan now? And has the situation in Ukraine taken up all the government's capacity for creating schemes for asylum seekers that don't actually work? And how do we stop Disney making a tasteless live-action film about those sad dogs where Chris Pratt does all of their voices? This week, I spoke to Sarah McGill and Andrew Fox at the Brilliant Azadi charity. They are a crisis response charity helping Afghans to get refuge in the UK. Sarah is one of the founders of the charity and a practising barrister, and Andrew is the charity's ops manager and former British Army officer who, as you will hear, served three tours in Afghanistan. I asked them just how many people are still stranded in the country, just why it's so difficult to help them relocate here, and if the war in Ukraine hasn't helped the efforts to help people from another terrible situation. I did something I don't usually do for this interview too, um, in that I cut out a few of my responses to Sarah and Andrew, because I'll be honest, listening back, I don't I don't really think they helped. Um, if you listen to this show regularly, you'll know I find it quite hard to articulate um, like a response to the horrific ways in which refugees are portrayed in the media or by the British government because I just can't fathom why you wouldn't want to help people because they're people. Uh, like, And you might say that's a really naive childish view. It's a human view. I just, there's people in trouble. Why wouldn't we get them out of trouble and save their lives? So, I mean, I sort of just said that several times during this chat because I heard uh, Sarah and Andrew's answers and all my brain could think, but why can't we help them? And all I really wanted to do was shout, that's so fucking awful and terrible. Um, and I didn't. So I- I've cut those bits out where I sort of fumbled my general despair at everything. Um, and instead you can just get Sarah and Andrew telling you why everything is so awful and terrible and what they are brilliantly, brilliantly trying to do about it. So here they are. Sarah and Andrew, thank you for coming on the podcast uh, this week. Um, and I think let, let's start right at the very top. Um, you know, people were very aware of the situation in Afghanistan. Um, I think it's not been in the news anywhere near as much in recent months. Um, how many people are still stranded in Afghanistan? How many people, um, how many Afghans that should have been relocated in the UK are still stuck there? It's impossible to be specific because the government are not being transparent Um with the specific numbers but we know that there are there are thousands still stuck inside afghanistan um that have been deemed eligible to come to the united kingdom and uh, and is is that, are those people that so those people that have applied so there's also other people then that are trying to leave afghanistan as well at the moment that may well be eligible but haven't been able to yeah the way the scheme works um there are, there's more than one scheme, there are more than one way to come to the United Kingdom and it very much depends on who who you are 
uh, and what you did and what your link is to come to this country of course there are lots of afghans trying to get out to go to places such as america canada france you know germany there was lots of international military and civilian and ngo involvement in that country before august of last year it went back 20 years and so um, each afghan has their own individual link to uh, an international country if we narrow in on the uk you've got um, british wives uh, uh, I, as in wives of British Afghans who don't have passports that are still stuck there trying to get out. You've got British children who are British by right. They're entitled to that maroon or now blue passport. Uh, they're entitled to come here, but they're having trouble getting out. Uh, and then you've got people who worked for us or with us um, and are um, they fit the eligibility criteria for what's called the Arab scheme, the Afghan Relocations and Assistance Policy Scheme. Uh, but have not been given their final invitation to get to the nearest British embassy and make tracks here. So it's a phenomenal amount of people. It's it's not as many as America are dealing with because they covered the whole of Afghanistan, whereas we were mainly in the south, uh, focusing around the Kabul region. But it's still a huge amount of people and it's a, it's a, it's, it's a lot to deal with. And the Taliban have not made it easy for people to get travel documents to leave. And so I would say... A, a, possibly a majority actually of people that were still that were stuck there in August are actually still stuck there now and few have been able to get out. And how how dangerous is it for them to still be there? So how at risk are they by still being in, in Afghanistan? Uh, we've seen tortures and executions. Right. So um, like life-threatening quite, quite for them to still be there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. You know, beatings, beatings in the street. Um, people being abducted and then tortured, um, and then obviously, as Sarah says, the you know the extreme end of violence as well. It's um, it's particularly difficult if you're a minority group over there. So we've seen in the last few days explosions going off in Hazara areas, uh, as, as you know, one group or another is targeting those Hazaras, as as the Taliban did in the 80s when they were in power as well. Um, obviously, if you're if you're a woman and you try and travel on your own, or if you try and you know have the temerity to try and get educated or go to go to work, then you know you're also going to be facing that kind of oppression. So, it's it's a really really difficult situation there at the moment. And what we've noticed is that the Taliban need money, and uh, kidnapping and abducting people, keeping them in prison, and then putting a ransom on their heads is a, a, a quick and easy, uh, brutal way of obtaining money for, for doing quite very little. Uh, it's distressing because the prisons that they're keeping these people in are prisons that were run, maintained, managed uh, and built by the Americans, and sometimes the British. And they left, they walked out, they left fully functioning prisons there. They left the keys, they left the passwords, the cell codes, whatever. The, the, you know, the booking in instructions were left. The offices were emptied. And now these, um, these buildings are being used by the Taliban to, um, to torture people who should have been um, facilitated evacuation by now. Well, it's really horrifying. I mean, as you know, the, the big question is why? Why is it taking so long to get people here? What What are the difficulties in helping people evacuate from Afghanistan uh, and and well, particularly bring them to the UK? Well, there's kind of an evidentiary burden to start with. So people have to be able to prove that they did work with the British, and the scope of the scheme has been quite narrow since it was first started. They they reduced the categories of people who were allowed to come here. So, for example, if you're a, a white collar um, associate of of the British, then 
you've got quite a good chance. If you're a blue collar contractor, then you've got very little chance at all. Um, so one of the Afghans we're looking after was a former contractor who did, you know, resupplies down at some of the forward operating bases in Helmand. Uh, and you think that that would make him um, eligible to come here, but we're having real difficulties with him coming to the UK. So we're fighting that one, that battle at the moment. You know, and even though this guy's wife uh, was murdered and his father-in-law was blinded in, in an assassination attempt, you know, you'd, you'd think that'd be straightforward, but but it's not. And then you've got the issues of capacity as well, because once you're taking them over the border into Islamabad, they have to be put into hotels. It takes three to four months to do all the biometrics and process them through, and then get them out to the UK. Uh, and then moving them at a rate of about 125 a flight with, with at least 1,000 sat in Islamabad waiting to fly. So it's, there's that sort of very, very slow pathway to get people over the border to Islamabad and to safety. What, what I think, um, what, 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 what is the actual fact uh, of what's going on is that the British government are only moving people through Pakistan. What, what they actually have available to them, if they put the resources and the um, diplomatic uh, efforts into achieving is there are British embassies in Tajikistan, there is a British embassy in Uzbekistan, uh, there is a British embassy in Iran. Those are countries bordering Afghanistan. What is actually happening is they are only using Pakistan and we have seen a downturn and a reduction in the resources being deployed to the British High Commission in Pakistan to receive Afghans. This means there is no diplomatic agreement between um, Britain and Uzbekistan. There is no diplomatic agreement between Britain and Tajikistan. Those would be preferable options. They are sensible options to have the ability to have Afghans leave their country and attend that embassy to be processed. It's just not happening. And so the what should be quite a quick process is painfully slow. There's also no will on behalf of the government to start flying Afghans out before they have British visas from Kabul, whereas America and other countries are flying people in and out quite regularly. Like you or I could fly into Kabul next week. As long as we had it all pre-agreed, we could fly in uh, and, and that would be fine. And we could fly back out again because we are British passport holders. Um, these uh, And if you are an Afghan with a British passport, you can leave via Kabul and get a connecting flight out here. Uh, they will lay it on for you. The government will lay that on for you for free. So the, it's not the fact that this is an impenetrable war zone where people have to be smuggled out in wheelbarrows, uh, you know, at two o'clock in the morning over the border. You can get in and out of Afghanistan. That is possible. Our country is not willing to let Afghans who are entitled to come here out because they haven't had their final biometrics done and they haven't had their final British visas given to them at the embassy. But there isn't enough public pressure on them uh, to try and achieve any more than they are doing at present. And because of that, they're basically taking advantage of it and leaving it on a go slow, in my opinion. Well, that's what I was going to say is why is there such a reluctance? You know, because uh, obviously, you know, sort of Britain has a, an issue with, with uh, refugees and asylum seekers in terms of how they're portrayed. And, uh, but, but, you know, a lot of these people did help the British military. You know, there's, you know, in terms of sort of patriotic views, these are people that aided our, our soldiers. You know, how come that hasn't kind of come across? Why is there such a reluctance to help these people who were there for us? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's it's the the kind of the images that you see of people crossing the channel and then celebrating when they get here and then that being portrayed in certain parts of the media is them celebrating that they're suddenly going to get British benefits and you know rather than just being happy that they're safe in, the, in a country they want to be in um and you know I can I can testify firsthand to, to how the Afghans helped us you know I did three tours over there and you know I worked with Afghans on a daily basis and and saw just how they were taking risks 
you know, in every way, as much as the British Army was, your interpreter was there with you, and we couldn't have achieved anything that we achieved over there. And you know, we can talk about whether we achieved anything or not, but the small wins we had were were achieved thanks to Afghans helping us and putting themselves in harm's way. Um, and you know, I've got friends who are over here now who are who are interpreters for us over there, and they're people who are coming here and want to add to our economy and get a job and pay tax. You know, they don't want to be takers from the state; they want to be people who are functioning members of society. Um, and it's just such a shame that we can't get that message across in the media. And I think that probably ties into what, what Sarah's about to say um, in terms of the way, um, you know, the, the media spotlight seems to be off this issue. Yeah, it's almost as if they got weary of it because it took too long and there wasn't really a beginning and an end to the story. It was just an ongoing, it's still terrible, everybody's still dying, everyone's still in danger. The press seemed to become... Um, tired of it they need new information it, th there is a myth there is a myth that because Afghanistan is a um, poorer country than Britain that people who come here will never want to go back and it is such a myth Afghans by their culture by their nature are family people we are splitting them from their families when we allow them to come here because we don't allow their whole family to come. These are people who live in multi-generational households. You know, they, they don't want to leave their wider family and come over here with just their wife and their child or just come over here on their own. Um, they want to go home and it's not just, their country is beautiful, by the way, it's stunning. Um, but it's not just that, it is everything to them in the same way that Britain is everything to your average British person. And if you had to leave here and go somewhere else, maybe a wealthier country, um, you would still long for your homeland, your your native tongue, your food, you know, the mountains, whatever it is that you miss from that country. And what we hear time and time again from the people that we talk to and the people that do come over here is they want to go home. And as soon as they can go and it's safe for them to go home, they will go. They want to see their grandmother. They want to see their sister, their brother, their aunts. They just want to go back. Coming here and living on £100 a week, which is what the Arab allowance is when they come here. It's, these are people who were in huge, sprawling estates, you know. They had a vineyard or they had gardens. They had a, a lovely car. They had a wonderful job, a wonderful quality of life. And they come here and they're living in a council flat on £100 a week. And, and you think those people don't want to go home. They want to go home. I think the public need to understand this, that they're coming here because they want to live because they don't want to be killed, they don't want to be tortured, they don't want to die. They're coming here and they will take advantage of the wonderful education. They will work hard. They're so keen that we see the ones that we, we talk to when they arrive here, they can't wait to get to work. They hate being on benefits. They find it um, degrading and demoralizing and they want to work straight away. Um, it's just, I think the public mindset needs to be changed from these are people who are coming here to scrounge because they're just not they're just people who want to be alive yeah and i think taking sort of the macro of what sarah was saying down to the micro you know i had dinner with a friend of mine uh, richard a couple of weeks ago and this is a, a a man who ran a business in kabul um and who when um operation pitting you know in the airport in kabul when that was launched he, he essentially went into work and volunteered himself as an interpreter and he was uh, going into the crowd with the American Special Forces and helping translate for them uh, on a volunteer basis. And then he jumped the last flight, the last British flight out of Kabul Airport. And having dinner with him and sort of seeing the pain in his face when he talks about his home country and, you know, that that longing, you know, we've got words for it in the UK, you know, in Welsh, it's here, you know, missing your homeland. Um, 
you know, this is not a man who wants to be here particularly. He's very grateful for the opportunity to be here and not be executed. But he's already talking about what he will do in Afghanistan when he gets to go back, if he ever does. And, you know, he's planning for the future. Um, another one, you know, a guy called Lal, he was a government minister in the Ghani regime. Um, you know, he was a uh, minister for, it was called the Department for Martyrs and the Disabled. It's quite a, quite a glamorous uh, departmental name. But, you know, he this is a guy who is a government minister, fairly wealthy businessman, now living on benefits here. You know, this is not an upgrade for him at all. Uh, and, you know, he's had his own mental challenges to try and get over the fact that he's no longer allowed the minister, he's now allowed the refugee. And that's really, really hard and debasing. And as Sarah said, it's just not something that they want. They don't want to be here. They want to be back in Afghanistan in a country that's not run by psychopaths. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. And it must just be so heartbreaking for you working with people and hearing their stories direct. You know, I, I think that's what people need to hear. I think people need to hear the kind of personal stories and 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 actually connect to them i mean it's I mean, something that's sort of quite a sensitive question i realized but you know obviously and, and, and this isn't demeaning the situation in ukraine which is very very serious but that has taken over the news and there's been an awful lot of help uh given to asylum seekers from uh ukraine who obviously need it as well but has that detracted from uh the help that's being given to asylum seekers uh fr- from afghanistan because it does very much feel like that issue disappeared when the Ukraine, uh, when the war in Ukraine started? Pathways that were previously available to European countries, to Afghans fleeing Afghanistan have now closed and are only open to Ukrainians. Um, that's devastating because there were Afghans who had understood that they would be eligible um, for those pathways and now they're having to be told that those pathways are no longer open to them. They may be open in the future, but they're not open now. Um, I think from the, and I, I appreciate that I shouldn't be in a position to speak on behalf of any Afghans at all. That's not right. But I can repeat what I, they've told me. The people that we're working with have told me that um, they can see on the news that the Ukrainians need help and they would never wish to deny someone else suffering uh, the outcome of conflict help. Um, but they, they're sad to see the, the impact on, uh, on them, which is basically that, that doors have been closed on them. And, and previously, people who were donating generously, both their time and their money and their resources, have flicked over and they've moved to donating their time, their money and their resources to Ukraine because it's seen as a more immediate need, whereas Afghanistan has been needing assistance for some time and yes we have seen other evacuation organizations up sticks and move completely we've seen some that have just divided their resources and tried for both regions Um, but it had to have a knock-on you know you can't have 20 countries saying yes we'll take afghans but we won't take ukrainians everybody was going to open their doors to either both or they were going to close them to one it it is unfortunate as a a charity as a charitable organization we have noticed a huge downturn in, in donations um, we we are really struggling now, and that that is d- directly as a result of uh, people funneling their money into into uh, helping the Ukraine crisis. We don't criticise that. Uh, we would never criticise that. We can see that there is massive need there. Uh, this isn't a competition. It's just very very sad that uh, and it's but they're not the only conflicts either. There's conflicts going on all over the world um, that just get brushed under the carpet in terms of the British visibility on them. So, yeah. It has affected us, and it's affected uh, the people that we're helping with. 
It's so, it's so tricky. As you say, it's such a, a fine line, but it, is, it very much seems to be what the news, uh, as you mentioned earlier, what the news focuses on at, at what time and therefore what people think is, you know, as I say, I don't think really Afghanistan's been in the news now for several months, uh, visibly, um, which is obviously going to affect it. Um, and, and I think one thing that's become... Um, Highlighted both by well, both by uh, you know the situation in Ukraine and Afghanistan, but um, also you know we've been hearing these uh, these recent plans whether or not they will actually happen about sending asylum seekers to Rwanda. You know, I wanted to ask um, Sarah: Are there any are there any safe routes to the UK for asylum seekers now? Are there any that is sort of criticised at one point? There weren't any safe routes um, really to come through. It was such a complicated process. And how concerning is this kind of plan to send? Uh, people to be processed in Rwanda, would that affect people coming from Afghanistan? Yes, it would affect people coming from Afghanistan. Uh, In fact, someone that I'm in contact with quite regularly um, came over as an illegal entrant uh, a few months ago because, and he's completely eligible for the Arab scheme, he's an interpreter. He, uh, his name's Rafi Hotak, you won't mind me naming him because he's spoken to the press about his journey. He gave up waiting and came here of his own volition late last year he'd probably still be waiting to come here if he hadn't uh, and, and fair play to him he's not the only interpreter to have who would who is completely eligible to come here under the Arab scheme who made that decision uh, there are a number of them who tried it there are also people who failed to get out of Afghanistan and I'm thinking of one gentleman in particular who was shot trying to get out by Iran and was killed unfortunately at the border and he would have been entitled to come here. No, there are no safe and legal routes to claim asylum in this country. The government would never allow that because it would be seen as having an open door policy. The law in relation to claiming asylum requires your feet to be on British soil to make that application for asylum, uh, which means that um, you would have to do something unlawful, i.e. overstay on a visa or uh, come over in a lorry or, you know, there are, there are hundreds of ways that people find to do it, to come here um, and then claim asylum uh, uh, that have varying degrees of success. But no, there are no safe routes at the moment. There, there needs to be. Uh, there needs to be a, a safe and legal way of applying for asylum. That would require a change in the law, which would re- require uh, a government that was willing to allow that to happen, which is clearly not going to happen uh, anytime soon. The recent decision to uh, announce this ridiculous policy to offshore um, and externalise the actual claiming of asylum process to Rwanda Uh, I have hoped was just a dead cat to detract attention away from Partygate uh, and Boris Johnson and and what looks like potentially him him being forced out. Um, But if it is serious, it's plainly unlawful. It contravenes, I think it's Article 33 of the um, Convention, European Convention on uh, Human Rights. It's that, 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 prevents refoulement, which is relocating asylum seekers into to a position where they're in greater danger. So it's unlawful, full stop. It's disgusting and it's unethical, um, but it's it's unlawful. There's, there's a couple of reasons why it's unlawful. I won't go into them in detail, but it, it just seems surprising because it is so clearly, even to someone who doesn't understand the law, obvious that this is unlawful because you're sending people to a country that has a terrible human rights record that's run by a dictator and where actually people come from to seek asylum to this country. And I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, 
but it's not a small number of Rwandans that come to the UK describing terrible conditions in Rwanda. Um, the whole thing just sounded bizarre, uh, and I hoped it was just uh, supposed to be um, a way of getting attention off what's going on at the moment with the Tory party. Uh, if, if it isn't, then they're going to be uh, paying a lot of immigration and human rights lawyers an awful lot of money because um, they're going to be having to instruct some lawyers to fight this out in the court over a very long period of time. And given Pretty Patel spends quite a lot of time criticising immigration and human rights lawyers, it seems odd that she's just lining their pockets by introducing this ridiculous policy. But if she wants to do it, that's fine. Yeah, it's, it was uh, it just it, one of those policies that very much, uh, it came out, you sort of thought, this is, I didn't think you could do anything worse, but this really seems like such a horrible thing to mention. I hope, hopefully, it won't even won't even get through to those stages. Uh, and as you say, it's dead cat. But um, I wanted to I wanted to ask about what what you two do really, and and what Azadi does. Um, and and obviously, you've talked about uh, you know that you are working directly with people. Um, but but how how did you set up? Uh, what do you actually do as a charity, Andrew? I wonder if you could tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so our, our role is to try and help people get out of Afghanistan. That, I think that's kind of the nutshell of what we, we're trying to achieve. Uh, and we do that in a variety of ways. And, and it, you know, as I understand it, I wasn't there right at the start of Azadi, but I was running my own little operation. And then I made a connection with her and she she co-opted me into the charity. But there's a load of people who, you know, people were getting, Afghans were getting in touch with them. They were doing what they could to raise money and help them get passports and visas. Um, and now we've got a, a sort of a hive mind where, We've got various people who are really good at certain different things, and we, we we kind of combine our efforts to try and try and help these people. So it's it's about providing living expenses, medical expenses, extraction costs, uh, passports and visas, uh, and you know making the connections for people in Afghanistan who can't do that for themselves. And what's the, what's the best thing for sort of people who are listening to this? You know, the podcast listeners is the best way to help to donate. Are there other things that they can do? What would you recommend uh, that people can do to be to be active uh, and, and help? I mean, it, it's a cash game at the moment. It's as simple as that. It's, you know, it, just to give you an idea, a visa to Pakistan, you have to use an agent that costs about $600 per person. Afghans have big families, so straight away those visa costs are enormous. Um, a passport could cost anything between 800 and 1000 um, and that goes up and down in terms of the supply and demand. So, you know, it, it's, it's a really, really expensive business. That's before you even start moving anyone anywhere, just getting them to the start line costs. You know, in the region of two grand per person. Um, so, so that's where we are at the moment. We need we need a huge amount of money to be able to to do what we do, and and that's the best way to help us. Brilliant. Well, th- well, thank you so much for the, for the work that you're doing. Hopefully, lots of people will be listening to this and uh, hit the donate button very quickly. Um, and and the last thing that I'd like to ask you, thank you for having time to come on uh, and talk to me. Um, you know, apart from yourself, uh, Azadi, are there are there other sort of uh, writers, websites, groups um, that you could recommend listeners check out for accurate information on Afghanistan, also on uh, sort of refugee and asylum seeker policy? Who are the people that you go to for information? I would like to promote our Twitter feed because we tend to retweet uh, and follow other sources. Human Rights Watch is a fantastic organisation to follow uh, and their website is brilliant. But we are at Azadi, which is A-Z-A-D-I underscore charity on Twitter. And we tend to um, only follow sources who have integrity and standing in the immigration and refugee community and whom we are sure uh, are credible. So if hopefully that's a useful resource for people if they go on and want to find out what's going on and we only put 
um, evidence on our feed that we are uh, sure is correct out of Afghanistan and we don't we don't post gratuitous content or any injuries or, or torture videos or anything like that because the problem is once you go into this world on social media and start to look at things there is quite a lot of upsetting content on there that you don't necessarily need to see um, so we just put uh, information on there that that, that we know uh, and we've checked out uh, and we can report without having to go down the line of um, putting on content that could cause people to not wish to engage with with the work so much. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Thanks so much to Sarah and Andrew for that. Uh, and also to Sarah, different one, at Azadi for helping set that interview up too. Uh, you can find Azadi Charity at azadicharity.com, on Twitter at azadi underscore charity and on Instagram as azadi charity. Please do go to their website and all their socials and donate and help them out if you can afford to, because they are really, really doing brilliant, brilliant work. You know the drill, uh, but as well as DIY awareness, you also know what you want to hear on this show. So any recommendations for people to interview or indeed politics things to find people to interview about, then put that drill down. Uh, unless you're in the middle of building stuff, then, you know, finish that first. I don't want you to get hurt. And then email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Um, if this show caused reactions, including laughter, enjoyment, informed thoughts or fulfilment, and didn't cause outrage, despair, spontaneous human combustion or a rash on your lower knees, then please do recommend it to others that you know, do a donation to the Kofi or join the Patreon, and why not even give it a review on one of them podcast sites. Big thank yous to Acast, my brother last sceptic, and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when it's revealed that Boris Johnson has been given another fine by the police and he looks set to go, but then he receives a third fine, which due to the rule of comedy, then makes it really funny. A fourth, fifth, sixth and seventh fine once again put his career on danger zones, but then a further 2,083 fines allow supporters to say it's now in the levels of absurdity that are really, really funny and he ends up staying in his job. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by the new true crime podcast, Blue Crime. Politics is scarier than fiction. 
Were you party to a crime scene, or was the party the crime scene? Or is the crime scene the whole party? From the really obvious stuff that's happening right in front of you and we can all see it, to that time Michael Fabricant was spotted in the woods and everyone called the RSPCA, and the general crime of someone finding Matt Hancock attractive. It's Blue Crime, where misdemeanor isn't just someone that might distract the Prime Minister. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 